Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business podcast from the Business and Vancouver newspaper and BIV.com. I'm Kirk LaPointe. I'm Haley Wooden. Coming up next, the founding partner of Jenna's Capital discusses the need for greater diversity in the industry and how to get there. And later on in our program, we're going to take a look at the first university program in Western Canada focused on clean technology and sustainable engineering. A growing body of research shows how diversity makes good business sense, period. But many industries have struggled to diversify their talent. In the financial services industry, for example, research by Mercer Canada shows that women make up more than two-thirds of support staff positions, but represent just a quarter of senior managers and 14% of executive committee members. Joining us today is a member of that 14%. Leslie Cliff is a founding partner and director of wealth management at Jenna's Capital Management. She chairs the company's board, and she also happens to be an Olympic medalist and an Order of Canada recipient. It's great to have you with us in studio. Thanks for coming in. Great, Haley. Thank you very much. I'm curious, after your Olympic career, what drew you to finance in the first place? Well, that's a, I was uh, I got a scholarship offer to swim at Arizona State University, and I had never taken school seriously. C plus was a waste of time; you could have passed with a C. So I took an aptitude test, and it came back that I should be an accountant, or go into corporate finance, or be an advertising executive. So I decided to take business courses, and I just loved the finance courses, particularly the investment. Well, and because as, as a Canadian amateur athlete, of course, you would have been so wealthy. Uh, at that, it, <laughs> particularly it's, 19, it's, in the early seventies, yeah, it's, it's even such, Mark Spitz made no such money. <laughs> a rem, such a remarkable, uh, uh, you know, lush uh, field. Uh, but you know, it, but it is an interesting point. Um, you must have gotten to know a lot of uh, a lot of Olympic level athletes and uh, seen what their commitment was at that point. And obviously, it's it's enormous. But were they good financial planners? Were they did they were they looking after themselves? post-career at all, I mean, what they were going to be doing. Well, you know, back then, and even to maybe even 10, 15 years ago, uh, former Olympic athletes had a lot of trouble converting to the real world, whether yeah. it's financial analysis or mm -hmm. just getting a job, any job, uh, waking up in the morning and being motivated to do anything. It's a real um, switch yeah. from being one of the best in the world at something to being a schmuck and being decades behind your peers and wondering what you're going to do with the rest of your life. So the Canadian Olympic Committee now has a really great program for retiring Olympic athletes to try to help them get into the real world. I was so fortunate to go to Arizona State, get a degree in finance, enjoy it so much, and get some balance in my swimming world and academic world at the same time. So I was really blessed. But yeah. a lot of athletes struggle. Yeah. yeah. I'm curious, too. We're talking about diversity. What was it like? back then when you're first starting out again sort of a second career now in finance well that's interesting my first job uh, interview was with uh, wood gundy now cibc in 1970 home for christmas and uh, they were advertising in the newspaper they were hiring uh, retail stockbrokers to go in their training program so um interviewed and uh, at the end of the interview i was like well what do you think and he said well you know we we, you don't want to be, you don't want to work. We have only one woman that works here and she used to be a cocktail waitress. <laughs> I said, well, so if I go be a cocktail waitress and come back, then will you hire me? And uh, so that was the attitude. And that cocktail waitress was a very successful broker. 
What, what did you feel though, Leslie, that you, um, I mean, I, so no, the door was closed when I, in the early seventies. Yeah. How much did you have to carry around this sense that you're going to, you were going to have to somehow doubly, triply prove your bona fides to, to a lot of men that were, um, not just discouraging, but, but outright hostile in the situation? Well, I was, again, blessed because Austin Taylor and Mike Edwards of McLeod Young Weir did hire women. And I was one of three or four they hired. Christy McLeod was before me and she was successful. Hmm. I never really had a chip on my shoulder, I have to say. I just always have been motivated internally. And I really wanted to be successful, not to prove somebody wrong, but to to be successful. Yeah. What drove you ultimately to sort of branch out on your own and become a founding partner at your own organization? Well, Probably being a bit of a control freak, frankly, <laughs> and not really wanting to be in sales for other financial institutions where you don't have control over your product mm. and uh, your sales process. Uh, it's a very profitable industry, and you don't need to be aggressive. You just need to meet your client's needs to be successful. And I think some of the financial institutions are too aggressive, and they make their salespeople be too aggressive. And you don't need to be. You can be successful without being aggressive. So what's your, uh, what would you say is your, your magic formula in terms of the amount of time you spend with clients, what kind of relationships you build with them, how you get to know maybe their their own inner workings and what, they, uh, what they're looking for in the balance of their lives, and then how you, how you manage that? Yeah. Well, we don't, I, don't spend, I haven't spent a lot of time with my clients on the clock time, but I hope it's quality time. In other words, I always say, do you want to have lunch with your dentist? Like, you know, you really don't have, <laughs> I, I need to know the answers to your financial questions. What drives you? Do you want to leave money to your kids? Do you want your last check to bounce? You know, those kinds of questions I need to know the answers to in order to figure out your risk profile and do, create a proper portfolio for you. And also I need to understand your emotional tolerance for volatility to, to understand how what kind of volatility you can accept and still sleep at night. So I, I got to get those answers. So whatever time it takes to get those answers. And if those answers aren't coming to me from the, we may not be a good match. You know, yeah. if, if I can't figure out how to make your head nod at the right time, then it may not work. Do you prefer, um, certain types of attributes in a client that where you you then feel like you're in a more comfortable zone and i just prefer um reasonable people uh i don't even care if they're <laughs> really we wealthy yeah. and in fact over time the ones that have given me the most satisfaction as a professional have been uh people who uh, the the industry might view as victims people who really don't understand the industry uh -huh. i know i'm keeping them safe i know i'm giving them good advice. Uh, once I had an out-of-body experience, I think, gosh, this person is really trusting me. It's, and I thought, Leslie, you're trustworthy. They should trust you. Yeah. <laughs> but those kinds of clients, uh, you really get a joy out of because you're really helping them. Mm -hmm. This process you're describing of getting to know the client, figuring out answers, was that power dynamic, that relationship like this when you first started out or was it fundamentally different how brokers interact no with it's changed over time and in fact i always say 2008 that downturn really made our industry better certainly made me better uh in terms of probing risk profiles and sustainable financial ha habits um you know what would help me go back to sleep at time in in those middle of the dark days was going through my client now is they are safe they're safe they're safe it's people who want their last check to bounce and they're spending capital. Those are the risky clients. 
And um, you just got to make sure you're on the same page as them and so they understand the risk they're taking on. So no, I've changed. I mm-hmm. do a much better job as I've gotten older. Um, generation to generation, uh, how do you think Canadians are doing right now? Again, I, I read another report on Gen Xers and, and how difficult they are experiencing the world right now in terms of their own overall savings, maybe having to take care of ailing parents at the same time as they are parents themselves uh, and having to manage that. Um, do you stay awake at night worrying about the future of the way we're planning and saving? Uh, I think it's a problem. I think the stats are overwhelming. This wage gap is alive and well in Canada as well. Mm-hmm. And the next generation really does have um, to to reduce their standard of living uh, for the rest of their lives relative to their parents and grandparents. And that's um, not an just a reality. To, not an easy thing to tell your children. No, it's not. Yeah. And but it's true. Mm-hmm. And so transparency is a good thing and uh, getting over it, get over it. I, I don't mean to be, because I'm lucky I was in the, the older generation, but uh, my kids work way harder, have way less um, opportunity. It's sad, but it's true. It doesn't keep me up as much at night as the uh, carbon in our air and uh, that kind of stuff that uh, yeah. that bothers me more. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you find when clients are coming to you, maybe expectations need to be changed a little bit? You know, we don't attract really aggressive clients. We do wealth management. And, you know, actually what sells to the kind of clients that uh, hire us is fear. Uh, So they're afraid of losing their assets. Mm -hmm. They know it's a crazy world. They can't replicate. They can't generate the capital they currently have. So they really don't want to lose it. So um, I get more people who are, you know, I met with somebody the other day who has a million dollars in their savings account and they have a huge pension plan <laughs> because they're so fearful of the world uh, and they'll lose so money So you immediately sure. move, you move them into cryptocurrency that afternoon. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, yeah. I told them money's about units of happiness and if it makes you happy to have a million dollars in the bank, then put a million. But be aware, you are after tax and after inflation, you are losing money for sure. But that's okay if it's on plan. If you know that's okay that's for the them. cost you're willing. To, yeah, if that's to the cost have, you're willing yeah. to pay. It's my job just to tell them the cost they're, they're, that creates, not to convince them to do something else. Mm-hmm. I think in in many cases, clients, customers, they're becoming a little bit savvier. They maybe look to see how diverse is a company, what types of investments are available to them, what companies do they then invest in. How much of that are you seeing where you're almost sort of in the hot seat being interviewed? Well, it's as I say, 08's changed everything. The technologies change, information's so available. Uh, so we are very much more on the hot seat. Transparency. Fortunately, we've always shown our fees, but the, you know that the BC Securities Commission has woken up to the fact that the public has no idea what their financial services cost them. Right. Slowly, they're showing them. Uh, so yeah, it's a it's a lot more difficult. Uh, clients are more demanding. They want more value. They deserve more value. They deserve to know what their fees are. So I don't think it's inappropriate at all. I, I would say it's about time. We uh, we started a conversation, I think, wanting to look at the issue of the broad issue of diversity in in the, in the boardroom at the executive level, and clearly in the services in the financial services industry, uh, there still remain um, many many obstacles. It seems uh, institutionally, but they're they're being whittled away. Where where do you see the the progress here? Well, I was saying I, I only have my own observations, and Vancouver's 
not a big corporate city. Uh, you know, we're kind of a branch city. So, but I can just go by what I've seen. And I would say the, you know, the opportunities for my generation, I'm 63. The opportunities for my generation is lots of firms wanted a woman. They wanted a token woman. They just like hire one, get us off this shit list. Sorry, get us <laughs> off this list. And um, <clears throat> so they go hire one and they go, that's done. Let's, let's get on with life. Um, so, but I was, things have changed. The uh, decision makers in their 60s now, the men in their 60s now, not in their 80s, but in their 60s, they want women in their organization. They want women in senior positions at their organization, not because media is asking, but because they've read the research also. And they know, they've sat in enough tables with diversity around the table to know it's better. So the smart guys, uh, and, and most people who get to senior positions are smart. They know, they want women. I really think the... Um, the conversation has to change. Um, Heather White, who's a consultant out in, in White Rock, says, and she's right, we have to change the conversation. It's not about what are the barriers. It's like, where are the women and what do they need to do to be discovered? Because men want to hire you yeah. and they want you in the, the C office. So, so what, what are the techniques of discovery in this case? Well, I think uh, you have to read uh, Sheryl Sandberg's book, Lean In. Lean In, yeah. Uh, uh, what Heather would say, the very first thing that women don't do that they really miss out on, that men do so naturally, is collaborate and support each other, which is why Marilyn Albright has that famous saying, may all the women who don't support other women go to hell. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, and I would say definitely the token women in my generation, we were so careful about uh, doing a good job and um, we're like the female uh, customs agent you don't want. Like uh, That's the 60-year-old women. We uh, really wanted to prove to the men that we were good and we wouldn't support our female friends because that would be like, that wouldn't be right, would it? So the men who knew each other in kindergarten, never saw each other again, would immediately help each other. Women were like, no, that, that wouldn't be right. Uh, so women have to help each other. They have to collaborate with each other and support each other. That would be the number one thing they need to do. Is this something that businesses can help facilitate within a corporate environment, or do you think it really has to be? I think they can, but, you know, the informal, um, you know, reaching out to other people with your job in other institutions is what women need to do. And that's very hard. Like, I don't really want the young women in my office knowing the young women in another competitor's office. That's right. You know, that's not really something I want to facilitate. I, I being my generation, not just Leslie. Uh, so no, they have to do their homework. They have to figure out who the women in the city are that they want to know. And they have to phone them and have coffee with them. Um, and I really believe the wage gap thing, which is obviously global and bigger than Vancouver, but it's in Vancouver too. And it's partly because women don't collaborate with other women and find out what they're paid. Like they somehow, men do that before they order the coffee. Like how much do you make? And why? And what did your boss say at your last review? And why won't you make more? Uh, that's a conversation that women don't have naturally. And they need to. And they need to demand more compensation. Only if they're, they have to be fair. They have, but if they know industry standards, then they're more likely to hit the button that is, is correct. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Uh, when you're at Genus in a hiring capacity, what would you say even anecdotally or the number of Male applicants you get versus female applicants. Well, I um, am on my most. I don't hire people anymore, but for years I did. And um, you know, you tend to go look for people when you're looking for salespeople. Salespeople who apply usually are unsuccessful. <laughs> so 
but you really don't want to hire them. You want to go out and target the salespeople who are, you know, is, are successful. Um, and I would always seem to target females. And I really believe that's an error. That's a human error that you just hire in your own image. Uh, and uh, I was just, it's very comfortable for me to hire females. Demographically, I relate to them. I understand them. Working moms, I understand their issues. You know, the alpha male, I'm like, really? You're going to have to work for me? That's That feels like stress for me because I don't get you. So I really think it's a big problem. And it's a problem for me, too. Yeah. Uh, every human. What, what did you feel you, I mean, because I... I I've certainly had the same some uh, experience over the years in hiring, and and I think you tend to revert to form. You tend to yeah. hire people who yeah. you you almost instantly can relate to. Exactly. But you've got to learn something about yourself along the way here, and take yourself out of it a bit, and understand how much that's emotion. Yeah. Getting in the way of a profession. Yep. W- tell me a bit about what your learning was here. Well, mistakes, you know, uh, in sport, you learn uh, from your mistakes. You, an athlete never learns unless they fail. They yeah. just have a high ego. And uh, so I made uh, hiring mistakes and I learned from them. And part of the uh, solution is to share the hiring process with other people. Uh, so that's been uh, what we've done. So I have a voice in who we hire, but it's not an only voice. Nobody has the only voice. Mm. Mm. Um, before we wrap up, you suggested maybe women getting together, talking about their shared experiences. Do you think hirers, do they do that too? Do they share about their experiences in hiring or trying to, you know, get more diversity in financial services? Does it make sense at that You level? know, I don't do a lot of that, but I th- that was a big part of my job. I would have gone to courses. I would read about it. I would, you know, reach out and talk to experts about it. So I'm sure they do. I I wouldn't want to put myself forward. You know, in 30 years, I've hired 10 people. So, um, uh, but of course, you should do the same thing, whatever your field of interest is. Great. Leslie, a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. That's Leslie Cliff, founding partner and director of wealth management at Genesis Capital. Starting next year, university students are going to be able to take a program tailored to support careers in BC's clean tech sector. We're going to talk about this next. BC accounts for 25 to 30% of all clean tech companies in Canada. And in 2012, the province had about half a dozen clean tech jobs for every job in oil, gas, and mining. That was in 2012. The industry has no doubt grown since then. And a new program at Simon Fraser University is designed to prepare graduates for opportunities specifically in the clean tech energy space. The program's called the Sustainable Energy Engineering Program. It's the first of its kind in Western Canada. The program's director is Dr. Kevin Oldno, an associate dean in the Faculty of Applied Sciences with more than two decades of experience on the industry side. And he joins us now on the program. Thanks for coming on, Kevin. Thanks for having me on. Before this program, first of its kind in Western Canada, what would be the typical education background of someone working in today's clean tech energy space? Sure. So there's going to be a range of different educational backgrounds. Uh, If we're looking at the um, technology and the technical uh, focused work, then you're going to see a number of different engineering disciplines showing up. Uh, You'd see mechanical engineering, electrical engineering, uh, steering more towards the electronic and, and computational side, and of course um, some chemistry and, and chemical engineering in there as well. 
So uh, I think you'd see a, a wide range of some of your more traditional engineering disciplines, as well as some of your um, newer and, and more combined disciplines like mechatronics, for example. So this is a generational shift. I, I would expect now that there are people in uh, students in high school, maybe even elementary school, who are saying, when I grow up, I want to get into the clean tech field. What what do you think has been the overall change in in attitudes about that? And, and why is it attracting so many people? Sure. So I think um, one of the uh, one of the comments that I'd heard fairly recently at a talk given um, at, at the Globe Conference in town was talking about the notion of, of a career with purpose. And uh, that seems to be um, front and center in the minds of, of the generation that's looking at their options right now. Um, that, that notion of, of purpose and having that at the center of, of the working career uh, seems to be something that's quite powerful in, in shaping the thinking. It wasn't as if technology was reckless and wasteful and harmful before, but has has the presence of clean tech and, and its evolution really prompted a rethink on how people approach large disciplines like computer science, like engineering, like other areas? I think the notion of, of efficiency has, has been central to um, thinking in engineering and in computing science since day one. Uh, the idea that, that design should be efficient and that um, resource use should be efficient is, is something that uh, really kind of permeates the thinking. And I think the shift, the more recent shift, has been in part gathering up um, all of the thinking on all of the work around making systems more efficient and really directly making the connection to um, energy and to environmental impact and so on. And then also placing it in a wider context around policy and around legislative frameworks and kind of seeing that that wider landscape. So I don't think it's I don't think it's the case that that the historical thinking has been reckless. I think it's more about um, putting it in a lens and then looking at it in a in a broader landscape. Mm -hmm. When you have your first graduates from this program, what are the kinds of roles you expect them to hold? I think there could be a, a range from you know, highly technical to much more systems and then maybe even oriented more towards um, uh, the technology side of policy and so on. Um, we've got a vibrant ecosystem here uh, in the Lower Mainland in BC and, and in Canada, and that includes some larger companies uh, in the space as well as uh, an ecosystem of, of startups and, and smaller companies as well. And then we've got uh, government, whether that's uh, federal, provincial or, or local. Uh, I think in each of those spaces, there's there's room for someone to participate uh, when they have a, a strong technical foundation that's married with um, the understanding of societal implications and really a view on, on the policy aspects, on the environmental aspects and on the sustainability aspects as well. You talked earlier about the, the uh, desire for a career with purpose. Do you find that the students who are coming through these this kind of training understand that they're really doing significant work when they're entering conventional fields that have you know that have used fossil fuels that have been uh, that that have been uh, uh, excavating resources from the ground that these are um, these are attributes that at one time weren't all that clean and are trying to become so. 
Yeah, I think you can really broaden it out and look at uh, engineering endeavors and computing science endeavors, not even not even isolated in the space of clean tech, but much more widely than that. Um, I think often uh, students go through a transformation from their starting days and their degrees through to their 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 graduation, where initially they might be attracted to a given program of study because it's it's what they're good at, it what resonates with them, and they have some general sense of where it might take them. But one of uh, one of our roles in delivering um, this program and any other is to instill that awareness of, of where the work fits in the societal context so that as students are graduating, they, they can see just how important and how meaningful and, and what an impact um, they can have in carrying out the work that they do. What have you heard from industry in terms of what they're looking for by way of talent and expertise? So the, the support level for, for the initiative is, has been really good. It's been very high. And uh, we did do some groundwork in terms of a fairly um, wide-ranging industry survey uh, looking at companies across Canada and, and also here in BC. And what we heard is that there is this um, uh, demand for, for technically trained um, uh, incoming staff and that there's also an opportunity to widen that out. So it was just uh, just about half of the companies that are currently employing engineers into the clean tech space uh, said that they thought they were arriving with all the skills they need. And the other half said there was room for, for more um, in terms of the education that they get uh, before they jump into that clean, that clean tech space. And it had to do with, with broadening out uh, the education and making some direct links into uh, concepts like um, ecological economics, um, uh, legislative frameworks, policy frameworks, and, and understanding where the, the work sits in that respect. So there's been an, an enthusiastic response, uh, I think a good demand, and we've received some good pointers in terms of how to, to shape the program to maximize its effect. Now, by no means would this cohort graduating uh, be the first in the field. I mean, obviously, clean tech has been with us now for uh, for a pretty solid generation. But uh, what I wonder about is what you what you teach students about their own participation in organizational change, because regardless of uh, uh, you know of, of when you started in the clean tech field, every person coming in, every initiative that's undertaken is all about changing, refocusing, um, uh, making more efficient some of the processes. What, what do you teach them about how to, how to champion change? I think um, so it's, it's a great question, and I think it really points to some of the design aspects uh, of the program itself uh, in that what we've aimed to do is, is broaden it out to make it interdisciplinary in engaging very directly some of the other faculties across SFU. Uh, two good examples are Faculty of Environment and also our, our BD School of Business. And if we look at uh, the way that we're hooking into the Faculty of Environment, um, it's again about situating the work in a broader framework. So understanding how what a given organization is doing interacts and, and impacts um, society and the ecosystem around it. So knowing uh, that relationship, I think, helps uh, help students understand why or how an organization might need to change and might need to adapt in order to fit into the landscape in the same way. 
And then if we look at um, the involvement of BD School in business, uh, BD School of Business, I'm sorry, that is really focused around entrepreneurial uh, training and entrepreneurial awareness. And I think um, having uh, a sense of the entrepreneurial spirit and how you put together um, an entrepreneurial initiative allows for a fluidity of thinking and allows for a nimbleness of thinking that says, okay, whether it's a full-blown new enterprise or whether it's change within an organization, um, there's, a, there's a stimulus to help think about how to do that. Mm -hmm. And throughout all of this, will there be applied experience opportunities and internships for students? Yeah, definitely. So that's something we're really aiming to emphasize. Um, if you look at uh, engineering and computing science programs in general, experiential learning is, is really central. Uh, so co-op um, education with work terms, as well as hands-on project experience, senior projects, these kinds of things show up across the board in the programs. Uh, in this specific program in sustainable energy engineering, we're aiming to broaden that side of things out a little more as well, and really point, student towards, point students towards uh, community-engaged projects and community-engaged work. So, for example, um, community-engaged projects as part of their co-op experience is something that we're hoping to pursue um, along with their projects and classes. So, ideally, helping to connect that dot, uh, connect those dots to the community in the, the sustainability context. Now, not everybody wants to live out a life working for somebody else and making money for them, <laughs> presumably. <laughs> uh, some want to start their own businesses. Some want to start uh, their own initiatives. Maybe they have patents that they have on particular uh, designs even. Uh, what do you try to bring them forward with in terms of a sense of entrepreneurship? That's, a, that's a, an area in which we're aiming to focus pretty specifically within the program, but also there's a large focus right across SFU. Um, there's a number of different entrepreneurship programs and opportunities that students can pursue across the university. Uh, inside this program, there's going to be a dedicated um, set of experiences tied to coursework delivered by BD School of Business, where students participate in interdisciplinary teams and look at entrepreneurial um, uh, initiatives. And then as they move towards their senior year and start thinking about their kind of final uh, capstone project, we, we call it, uh, there's opportunities for students to pursue entrepreneurial initiatives in the context of those senior projects as well. So for those students that, that are thinking that they may have that um, entrepreneurial mindset and they're thinking about starting up their own business, we're aiming to give them uh, the awareness uh, and, and some of the, the skills and, and the tools and ideally some of the um, experiences within you know, a relatively safe environment so that they can learn some of, the, um, some of those lessons and maybe accumulate a couple of the, the hard knocks in a, in a contained way before they go out and, <laughs> yeah. and test the waters. Are they out on their own then after the program or is there still going to be some kind of programs or services from SFU to help them on their entrepreneurial journey? So what we what we try to do, and, and this leans over into activities that are really spearheaded um, through the, the business school, but we do try to have a vibrant set of connections into incubators and accelerators, um, some of which exist within um, the campus or, or the SFU community, and some of those are, are outside uh, the boundary of SFU. But uh, we do try and avoid um, 
the experience in which students sort of emerge with an entrepreneurial momentum and then and then fall off a cliff. We do want to give them some support to help make transition to uh, to whatever that next step looks like. Sounds like an interesting program. Kevin, thanks so much for joining us on our show today to talk about it. Thanks very much for your time. I appreciate you having me on the show. That's Dr. Kevin Oldno, an Associate Dean in the Faculty of Applied Sciences at SFU and the Program Director of SFU's new Sustainable Energy Engineering Program, which starts in the fall of 2019. That's it for our show. Thanks for listening to BIV Today. Make sure you subscribe to us. Find our past episodes on iTunes and Stitcher and, of course, at our website, BIV.com. We'll be back tomorrow. <laughs>